I want to read a little bit from um, this poem by John O'Donohue for Freedom. As a bird soars high in the free holding of the wind, clear of the certainty of ground, opening the imagination of wings into the grace of emptiness to fulfill new voyagings, may your life awaken to the call of its freedom. As the embrace of the earth welcomes all we call death, taking deep into itself the right solitude of a seed, allowing it time to shed the grip of former form and give way to a deeper generosity that will one day send it forth, a tree into springtime. May all that holds you fall from its hungry ledge into the second surge of your heart. So it talks about what's holding us. And it's interesting, and this is maybe another way to think about what we're asked to examine in our practice. Where's the tightness? Where's the grip? Where's the limitation? Which is to say, where's the dukkha? It's the same. And there are, of course, many things that, that hold us. And we have our, our specific things. But I want to just talk about, maybe in general, a couple things that, that we can look for. One, of course, is our idea of how things are or, or should be. This is a major area that holds us. And I, I think um, of an example that came up this summer when I was traveling. I visited the Lowell Observatory, which is in Flagstaff. And it's named after Percival Lowell, who was an astronomer of the last century or maybe even the late 19th century. And he spent much of his career observing Mars. And, you know, the telescopes had just gotten good enough that we could see something of the planets. And he, um, he drew these amazing pictures of what he saw on Mars. And he invented um, this idea that they have uh, canals on Mars. He drew these complicated diagrams showing lines going across the entire planetary surface. I mean, if they were, if they were actually, you know, they, they must have been thousands of kilometers long. The only thing that's visible of, of that scale on the Earth from space, by the way, is the Great Wall of China. You can't see anything else that would be a long line like that. And he had them drawn all over the planet. And he invented that these were canals carrying water um, to the middle part of the planet that needed it from the polar ice caps. And he invented a civilization that had the engineering ability to do that and so forth, all of based on what he saw in the telescope. I mean, he was a, actually a, a real scientist and um, 
you know, we now know there aren't canals on Mars, but, you know, he wasn't, you know, trying to get a lot of fame or anything like that. He was a well-established scientist, but he really, truly saw this when he looked through the telescope and drew all these pictures. And people have tried to understand, you know, what was going on there, since we now have enough information that we know that's not the case. And at least at the Lowell Observatory, uh, what they've decided and what they have on their little display about him, and I don't know about the validity of this, is that what he was seeing was he saw a reflection in the lens of the veins in his eyes. That's the idea. Um, so uh, when I heard this, I just thought, this is so dharmic, <laughs> you know. How often are we looking out? But what we're seeing is what's in. You know, we're projecting in some way, um, maybe totally unbeknownst to us. It is true that there were the other scientists couldn't see these canals quite as clearly as he could. Um, at least maybe they had different patterns. I don't know. <laughs> but so this is one of the things that holds us, of course, is our way of seeing things and our way of projecting something from the inside onto the outside. And we, you know, what we tend to project is what we feel is the way things really are or should be. And this may be this idea of the certainty of ground that's dismissed in the first paragraph, first stanza of the poem. Our bird soars high, clear of the certainty of ground. And there's some image that our heart could do that if we weren't perhaps so concerned with, with the story. And then another thing, maybe just a variation on this theme, but seeing it in a different light is the, the way in which we create a story and then kind of manage it over time. You know, we have a sense of okay, this is what needs to happen, and here's how I'm going to make it come about. And there's a, um, you know, not that we never need to do this, but we can be held by our sense that it needs to unfold in a certain way, and I've got to make it go this way. And each time reality tells us, actually, this isn't really the best way for this unfold, or the conditions for this aren't really here. Reality is telling us that, but we just plow right through because we want this to unfold in this particular way, or we want something to be done. It's to be done. I'm going to say that it's done, but that process hasn't ended yet. So we're not ready for it to be done. So our way of managing things over time, based again on our idea of how they should be, I see this as in contrast to the seed analogy that's offered in the second stanza I read, which is that there's a way in which the earth just takes in a seed and then eventually, some springtime in the future, it will grow if the conditions are right. The seed doesn't know anything about that. Even the earth doesn't know anything about that in the sense that we think we know things. It just happens when the conditions are right. And it's not that we're going to give up our thinking, planning mind, which is useful in some cases, but can we attune ourselves more with this unfolding this process of seeds growing and uh, changing according to their nature, according to when the conditions are coming about. 
we may even have our own ideas about, as the poem says, what we call death. It doesn't say the earth welcomes everything that has died. It says it welcomes what we call death, and then goes on to point out that there's this process with the seed, you know, the fruit falls off the tree and rots, it's dead, but the seeds are going to do something else in the future. There's this ongoing unfolding. And who knows for us? So the, the holding, the things that hold our mind, our idea about what our life is, about who we are, about what we need to do, about what needs to happen, about what's right and what's wrong. Can you feel the way these hold in a certain way? And what would it be like to, to soar instead without the certainty of ground? And actually it does say, a bird soars high in the free holding of the wind. It's not like there's nothing that holds us or there's nothing at all. There is something. But it's the holding might be more like the wind than the hold of all of our ideas. And one way to practice with this is exactly as we're often instructed, but need to remember frequently is that we observe what's happening in the present moment. We flow with that. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, to take care of the future, take care of the present. So if we are in this moment, calm, peaceful, and aware, and sensitive, and compassionate, those are exactly the qualities that we'll have more of in the future, because that's what we're sowing in the present moment. And if we want the future to be peaceful, we won't get it by not being peaceful in this moment. Even if what's happening in this moment, we need to act or respond or change. If we want the result of that to be peace, we have to do that with peace in this moment. So there's a way in which the present can become the place of our our imagination of wings, our grace of emptiness in this moment, in order to bring forth, under right conditions, the future. This is another poem, this one from the Buddha. Slightly changed from the original so that it's as instructions for us. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, let me see with insight each presently arisen state, know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Another translation says, an auspicious day. It doesn't matter if it's day or night. But the way, you know, one way to read this is that our relationship to time, and particularly to the present, is 
what makes a day auspicious. It doesn't matter so much about the past and the future, but just living as we can now, even if we're planning for the future, um, we're recollecting the past, which we do all the time and which is necessary, um, we can understand that those activities occur in the present moment. Actually, imagining is a present moment activity. So the the wish of the first poem is that it's expressed as, may your life awaken to the call of its freedom. I think this is a very beautiful image because it, there's some sense of a future coming, we're being called towards something, but we may not know what it is necessarily. And it's more, the, the process is more like the seed and watering the seed in the present uh, with the, toward, toward whatever is calling us. So I encourage some reflection on this and perhaps just a resting. Maybe it brings to your mind a sense of rest, even within the activities of our day. So thank you.